It's 12.07 on April 12th, and this is the latest edition of the TDN Writers' Room podcast. My name is Bill Finley. I am a correspondent for the Thoroughbred Daily News, and I also co-host the Down the Stretch show on Sirius XM Radio with Dave Johnson. I am Randy Moss. I work for NBC Sports. Also, I'm involved with the Buyer Speed Figures, and right now in my uh, home in Minneapolis, I am thoroughly enjoying the 80-degree temperature here. How about that? Wow. I, I feel like I'm next to the ocean right now. It's all doom and gloom outside, but I'm Zoe with First Racing. I actually have Doodle behind me in his cone of shame. We're a week into tailgate right now from him biting a hole in his tail. So it's, yeah, I don't recommend it. He'll be poor, all right. Poor, poor Doodle. We're rooting for you, pal, to get out of that cone. Anyways, guys, a lot to talk about. Obviously, we're still right in the midst of, of the Triple Crown season, Kentucky Derby prep season. Three big races last week. Let's start with the Bluegrass. Uh, it was at Keeneland, of course, the Toyota Bluegrass. And the winner was Tappet Trice. No surprise there. He's the favorite coming off a win in the Tampa Bay Derby. I wasn't in love with this Tampa Bay Derby. I really liked his Bluegrass. I thought he made a major move forward in a lot of respects. First of all, Randy, the buyer number, went from an 88 in the Tampa Bay Derby to a uh, 99 in the Bluegrass. But more so than even that, in the Tampa Bay Derby, he just kind of ran to me like an immature horse, didn't really know what was going on, didn't kick in until maybe the final eighth of a mile. He was much different this week. He broke sharply, more sharply. He got himself into the race early. If you remember the Tampa Bay Derby, Luis Saez was riding the hair off this horse five furlongs out. He took himself into the thick of the race without much urging from Luis Saez gets to the front, verify a very good horse from Brad Cox. He's got to battle him. He did. He wins. Can he win the Kentucky Derby? Absolutely. And I don't think I would have said that <laughs> after the Tampa Bay Derby. Yeah. I mean, we talked before, uh, we talked last week, actually, on this podcast, and we talked on the NBC show before the the, the uh, Bluegrass. One of the more interesting things to watch would be to see if the proverbial light bulb went off in Tappet Trice's head. Right. About, you know, taking himself up to the competition instead of, uh, you know, being forced into it, as Luis Saez was having to do in the Tampa Bay Derby. A much more professional performance by Tappet Trice. And he also uh, got that speed figure with some ground loss, uh, four wide into and then three wide the rest of the way around the second turn. So he could uh, even do a little bit better than that. But here, but with, and I, and I share your opinion that, that that's mostly, a big positive. Uh, there is one, though, negative that is has flown completely under the radar for some reason. If you go back and you watch the bluegrass closely, and especially if you can have access to the head-on replay, but you can also see it on the pan shot. Going into the first turn, Tappet Trice is down on the inside of horses after again breaking so-so. Eh, he completely lost his action going into the first turn. He wasn't checked. He wasn't steadied. He did that on his own. Totally lost his action. Why? 
real, I mean, you know, you have to be a horse psychologist. He's not talking. Uh, only a couple of reasons really stick out as possibilities. One is that he sensed that the horses outside of him might drop in on him and got a little claustrophobic. The other would be he got a little kickback from the horses in front of him and reacted very poorly to, to the kickback. Both of those possible explanations do not necessarily bode well for the Kentucky Derby if Tappet Trice draws an inside post position. It'll be much more difficult for Luis Saez to get him to the outside away from those situations in the Kentucky Derby if he draws a post toward the inside as opposed to a post toward the outside. That's the only caveat I have about his race at the Bluegrass. I thought verifying ran exceptionally well. He got a much easier trip than Tappet Trice but he is the kind of horse that has the tactical speed to make his own good trips. And the Kentucky Derby is shaping up as a race that does not have an overabundance of early speed. So that will seem to help verifying. Looks like we might get five horses out of the bluegrass, possibly running on with Blazing Seven, Sun Thunder, and Ray's Kane, three, four, and five. But I only see Zoe, the top two, really, as being any sort of leading contenders in Louisville. Yeah. Absolutely. And hold on, let, let me pull Randy out of the rabbit hole because he's starting to burrow down in that rabbit hole. I can only think what else is yet to come. But as far as your point of him losing his action going into the first turn, he was finally close enough to get some kickback. I mean, before he's been so far back, you don't feel any kickback when you're that far back. And I think he finally got it. And no, he didn't like it. He didn't like it at all. But as, as far as the race went on, he ran into it. I thought maybe he was leaning in, coming down the lane, if I'm really going to critique him. Um, but a much better race than I was expecting from Tappet Trees. And this is the time where you want these horses to put in a much better race. You don't want them going backwards. You want them going forward. So a big, big thumbs up for me for Tappet Trice. Louis Sayers not having to pedal maybe as hard as we all thought he had to pedal. Uh, verifying, I don't think he lost anything in defeat. Uh, I think he's going to be uh, under the radar a little bit going into the Kentucky Derby, but I think he's definitely going to be on my ticket because he's a horse I've always liked. Randy, is he the second choice in the Kentucky Derby or is it Angel of Empire? I think it comes down to those two. Obviously, Forte will still be the favorite, I would imagine. But uh, I've I seen like, some of the um, Las Vegas guys and, and the offshore guys have – Forte like three to one, which I think is, is probably pretty accurate. I, I don't see him being pounded down to eight to five or anything like that. But to me, he's the second choice in the race or should be the second choice in the race. I think it's going to be close. I think Angel of Empire will have a lot of support because even though he beat a weaker field in the, in the Arkansas Derby, he did it in a much more dominating fashion than what we've seen from the other prep races. Uh, but yeah, I could totally see Tappet Trice. Second choice. And, you know, to continue the theme that Zoe and I are kind of talking about here, my main concern about the kickback is that really uh, going into Kentucky now, there are two possibilities. One is that he draws an inside post and he gets all kinds, all kinds of kickback that he does not like, which is not good. And two, the only way to avoid that kickback is to get him to the extreme outside, in which case he's destined to lose a lot of ground, possibly in the Kentucky Derby because he didn't really do any running in the bluegrass until Saez, Saez steered him to the outside. I mean, it was early, right? So he didn't have a chance to do much running, but he steered him out on the first turn. When he turned into the backstretch, he was on the extreme outside and he continued without getting kicked back and made that big run down the backstretch and on the outside all the way around the second turn. 
So that's, again, that's my only concern about him, but I do believe he deserves to be uh, either the, you know, at least the co-second choice. And I think a lot is going to be made of who rides who, because as we were discussing last week with Pratt, uh, obviously Go Rocket Ride is out of the equation now, but does he ride for Todd or does he ride for Brad? And I think that a lot of people will be looking at the wagering and figuring out where he goes, because right now nobody knows. He is, no, he is riding Angel of Empire. Oh, he is? He is riding Angel of Empire, yes. Okay. All right, well, one more point I wanted to make about the, the race and the performance, and it, I realize it's not this easy. This is not necessarily a eight, one plus one equals two. But take a look at this. In the Tampa Bay Derby, Classic Car Wash was second. Tampa Trice beat him by only two lengths. Now, did Classic Car Wash run the same race in the Bluegrass? Probably not. But gives you some gauge for, you know, maybe how much Tampa Trice improved. He beat him by 16 and a half lengths. In the bluegrass, so that's uh, an improvement of fourteen and a half lengths again under what, for what it's worth category. Okay, plenty of other big races at Keeneland. Uh, spectacular opening weekend is always the case this time of year. Good night, Olive came back to look real good in the Madison. But let's go to the Friday race, the Ashland, the prep for the Kentucky Oaks. And boy, this this division, I tell you, I, I mean, <laughs> I, oh boy, I, I want to say something nice about him. I can't, so I probably won't say anything at all. But you know, Kenny McPeak, he's tough. Um, you know, there were some big, uh, big names in here. Punchbowl, Julia Shining, Wonder Wheel, Defining Purpose gets the job done in there for Kenny McPeak. And again, in the for what it's worth category, in her pre previous start, she was six beaten five lengths by wet paint. So I think we already know that wet paint is the real deal. But I think that makes wet paint look a little bit better. But, you know, um, this whole division from the start has been more about who's been disappointing rather than who has stepped up and, uh, you know, proven themselves with, a, with a, you know, a few exceptions like wet paint. But, uh, you know, Wonder Wheel last year's two-year-old Philly championship, she's just stubbed her toe this year. If she couldn't win that race at Tampa Bay Downs against that 38-1 to shot, and she was six in this race. It, it looks like she has not made that transition that a horse has to make from two to three. Yeah, I mean, I thought the result of the, as you pointed out, the result of the Ashland totally flatters Wet Paint, who I think is going to be a fairly solid favorite uh, in the Kentucky Oaks. Uh, I, you know, I thought that uh, uh, the two, three finishers in there ran pretty well, Punchbowl and Julia Shining. They were both slowly getting to defining purpose at the end. Punchbowl didn't have the cleanest of trips, although she did save ground. But the interesting thing here is that right now, both Punchbowl and Julia Shining are definitely on the outside looking in in terms of points. They're going to need some defections. Right now, Julia Shining is 17 and Punchbowl is 19. Uh, if those horses were, you know, to get into the K Kentucky Oaks, they could be among the top five betting choices, and yet they might be um, excluded from the race. And only if, if Kentucky Oaks field is 14 as opposed to 20 for the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, and with regards to Punchbowl, I actually spoke to uh, Flavian about Punchbowl, and and he was he was like, I think I should have gone on with it, and he was kind of kicking himself. And I'm like, what are you going to chase the thirty to one shot? Like, what are you going to do? It's like I I don't know. Now I'm hindsight's twenty twenty, right? It's like maybe I should have gone on and tested her, but I'm like, you you can't do that. Nobody nobody was going to know the outcome of that race, and you were on the best horse. And uh, you rode her like it. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. But he was a, a bit nonplussed about that. 
The TDN Writers' Room is brought to you by Keeneland. Last September, we witnessed the unprecedented energy, magic, and momentum of the highest grossing auction in Keeneland history. And this year, it all returns at the Keeneland September Yearling Sale. Entry deadline is May the 1st. Learn more at theworldsyearlingsale.com. We'll be right back after these messages from Keeneland. If this place could talk, it would roar. It would say, this is racing. This beating heart in the heart of horse country. Steady and strong beneath the roar. Reminding us why. For the love of the horse. For generations to come. Maximum security proves he's the real deal with a gate to wire win in the Florida Derby. Champion three-year-old. Maximum security has won the TBG.com Haskell Invitational. 11 triple digit bias. Maximum security. He smoked them in the cigar mile. Grade one winning four-year-old. Maximum security takes them all the way in the TBG Pacific Classic. Secure your mayor's future. Maximum security. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by Coolmore. It was a big day for Ashford Stallions in classic preps on Saturday with American Pharaoh kicking off the party when his daughter Promise Her America won the Grade 3 Gazelle to punch her ticket to the Grade 1 Kentucky Oaks. Later that same day, Practical Joke's Practical Move won the Grade 1 Santa Anita Derby, while Justifies Verifying finished a neck second in the Grade 1 Bluegrass. And over on the turf, Motown got his first graded stakes winner when Mo Stash won the grade three Transylvania stakes at Keeneland on opening day. And on Tuesday, if that wasn't enough, Justify got his second European TDN rising star and his fifth overall when his two-year-old daughter, Rantrell, was an easy winner in her, two-year- in her first outing at Shanti. Let's head west from Keeneland and talk about the other big derby preps of the week. And we start off now this segment at Santa Anita. And boy, practical move, he's, he's, you know, he checks a lot of boxes. He's consistent, he fights, he won, won again, won the San Felipe, won the Santa Anita Derby, clearly on top of the three-year-old division in California. And um, talk about, uh, he'll probably be about fourth, fifth choice, I would imagine, in the Kentucky Derby, something like that. But I thought his biggest story was the run by Mandarin Hero coming out of Japan. And, you know, this, this, uh, ongoing story of the, the dominance of these horses and how good they've been. Now, he didn't win, but he loses by only a nose. And I don't profess to know much about Japanese racing, but we were told he's an NRA, NAR, not National Rifle Association, NAR circuit horse, which is the second dairy circuit in Japan and not up to par of the Japan Racing Association circuit. So, if a horse from their second string tracks can come within a nose of practical move, what does that mean about their J, uh, Japan Racing Association horses that are going to run in the Kentucky Derby, primarily Derma Sodagaki? Uh, Randy mentioned points earlier. Mandarin Hero is on the outside looking in as well in the Derby with 40 points. It's an amazing. Last year, Rich Strike, the last horse to get into the Kentucky Derby on the points and to win, had 21 points. This year, there are a bunch of horses with 40 that are right now are not in the main body of the race. So um, practical move, uh, thumbs up. 
Mandarin Hero, thumbs up. Interesting race. And uh, Derma Sotokaki, uh, it looks like he's for real, Randy. Skinner, thumbs up. I mean, he ran an excellent yeah. race, finished third despite losing a lot. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let me, let me hit all three horses quickly. Uh, practical move. There is a lot to like about practical move. Okay. Uh, he's got, he's tactical. He's got some determination. He's running fast Two back to back now, 100 buyer speed figures. But, uh, when you handicap these, these horses, you've got to look for the chinks in their armor as well. And you can definitely find them with practical move is horses don't earn buyer speed figures in a vacuum, how they run in the race and the type of race they run impacts how fast the figure is. And in Practical Moves case, he got those back-to-back 100 buyer speed figures in the San Felipe and the San Anita Derby, in effect, by taking shortcuts. He raced on the rail all the way around the track in both races. The rail just opened up for him in the San Felipe. And again, in the San Anita Derby, one in Vermilion set the pace, came off the rail into about the two-path. He was right there for Practical Move. And he moved up into the inside and just had the absolute garden trip. If practical move draws an outside post for the Kentucky Derby and is faced with the prospect of losing ground, it's going to be very difficult for him unless he takes a big step forward to duplicate those 100 buyer speed figures. So that is something that would be a negative about practical move. Another thing, and I'm not quite as sold on this on this particular item. But he is a son of practical joke who was better around one turn than he was around two turns, right? He was competitive in some two-turn races, better around one turn. And in the final eighth of a mile of the Santa Anita Derby, practical move was drifting a bit, which can be a sign of fatigue. And now that's at a mile and an eighth. What does that mean for practical move when he stretches out to a mile and a quarter? Now, you can make the case Mandarin Hero was the best horse in the race. He, did, he was impacted a little bit by some traffic. Uh, he had a rail trip like Practical Move did, but he had to kind of maneuver and, and sort of, you know, force his way out at one point to try to get some room. With a clean trip, I think he probably would have run down Practical Move. And yes, it seriously flatters Derma Sotogake's chances in the Kentucky Derby. Seriously flattered her. Skinner, you can make the case that Skinner uh, you know, could have been the best horse if you factor in ground loss. He was wide around both turns. But the way Victor Espinosa is riding Skinner is as if the rail is radioactive. He, even when Skinner was last in the San Felipe all by himself, Espinosa had him three to four paths off the rail around the first turn, just, just giving up all that ground. Uh, if he doesn't draw in the Kentucky Derby, that's why, because he was beaten a length for second in the San Felipe, despite an unnecessarily wide trip. So what's going to happen in the Kentucky Derby? Victor Espinosa, Skinner, he's going to be wide. He's going to be really wide. So you can you can bump him up in the San Anita Derby, but you're just going to have to bump him back down again when you get to Louisville uh, in a 20-horse field, Zoe. Well, Skinner's going to be a grinder. I, I think, you yeah. know, I mentioned, is he going to be the poor man's Giacomo? He's going to be... He's going to be there. I'm pretty sure he's going to get in because, unfortunately, we are liable to have several defections over the course of the next three weeks. So uh, I thought he ran very enough. Funnily enough, John Sheriffs actually, the CRK, bought the sister to Skinner at the recent OBS sale, and she's already here training at Santa Anita. So they're hoping for big things from Skinner. 
to make the system more valuable. And I'm sure we'll see her this summer, likely at Delmar. So I thought he ran well. Of all of them, he's going to love the mile and the quarter. There is no question about that. And he's not an overly big horse. So if he gets stopped, it's not really a problem. I mean, you'd think he was 18 hands with Victor going the overland route every single time, but he's not. Um, as far as Dermasoda, and uh, not Dermasoda, Gary, the um, Mandarin hero, yeah, Mandarin hero. What a game little horse he is! Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I got to follow him around when we taped the podcast last week. We'd shown, you know, just a fifty-three and change work from the pole that was just eh, so-so. But he came back on Thursday, and they didn't really want an official time, but they had to have one anyway. They opted for twenty-four and change for a quarter out of the gate. But he worked 36 and four out of the gate pretty nicely and pretty handily. It was almost like the gate woke him up. And that was something that I needed to see. Even in the pre-race warm-ups, um, KK took him away from the pony. And I'm like, wow. And he whizzed by us standing at the starting gate. I'm like, that's actually faster than he worked the other day. So it's, it started to pique my interest. Maybe he's just a very relaxed horse who race day does wake up. And he's the type of little horse that can be tactical, can be stopped, and can be maneuvered. And I've got no problems with uh, Kazushi Kimura riding him in the Kentucky Derby should he get in, because that kid can flat out ride. As far as practical move, do you feel sometimes he makes the lead so easily he waits a little bit? Because that's kind of what I'm seeing. I can see the distance limitations, but he's out of fleet Alex Mayer. So, I mean, that's going to get him to run all day long. But he seems to, he did make the lead way too early. And that was just because they, they, you could drive a Mack truck through that gap. But I'm wondering if he got a little bit more patient ride and made the lead at the eighth pole going a mile and a quarter, that that wouldn't be so much of a problem. That, that Those are my thoughts on the top three in the Santa Anita Derby. If, if any horse racing fans want to join me at the bottom of the rabbit hole, uh, you, <laughs> you can go online. It, it's not easy. But you can go online and you can find video of the uh, National Association of Racing Tracks in Japan. And you can go back and you can watch Mandarin Heroes races. And I encourage you, if you do, to go back and look at his race before last. Now, he was beaten in his last start by a horse that finished four lengths or I think it was four lengths behind Derma Sotogake right before that. But anyway. Go back and look at Mandarin Hero's race before last. He wins. It will be one of the worst rides you have ever seen a horse get. <laughs> so the jockey change to Kazushi Kimura had to be a huge positive over who was riding Mandarin Hero in those races uh, in Japan. Oh, my gosh, it was bad. And he still manages that. to win. The horse was under a drive with five-eighths of a mile to go and, and still manages to win. And I'll say one thing, the connections, I finally met the trainer, Teranobu Fujihita, and they were so happy. I mean, so, so happy. They were so thankful that they'd been welcomed into Santa Anita. He came up and and shook my hand. I I believe his wife was with him. And we took pictures. This was right after the second place finish. They were so excited and they're like, we're going to Kentucky. And I'm thinking, God, I hope you get in. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it was just really fun to watch. Someone be so happy to be second. I mean, they almost pulled it off because it was an improbable feat. Now, I had said earlier that the three-year-old fillies keep stubbing their toe. That's not necessarily true because in California, you have a real good one. But 
<laughs> and it's a big but. FaZa stayed undefeated with a six and a half length win in the Santa Anita Oaks. But uh, as we know now, she is not nominated to the Kentucky Oaks. And even if she were, because she stayed in the Baffert barn the whole time, she's not eligible to earn any points. Obviously, there's some bad blood politics, maybe with the owner, maybe a little bit with Baffert, but we know that Churchill Downs and, and that team are uh, not the best of friends at this point. But it's I don't know where she's going to go next. I, you know, Black Eyed Susan's not half the race. The Kentucky Oaks is maybe they'll go there. But that's a shame because, you know, she's really good. And, you know, if in a in if this none of this this problem ever uh, started in the first place, she would be the favorite in Kentucky Oaks. I think so. Uh, even even as good as uh, as wet paint has been. Right. I mean, Baze has been so dominant on the West Coast. You know, when we when this whole saga first started last year, you know, you didn't have Bob Baffert in Kentucky, but it didn't really negatively impact the Derby because you had the horses. You had Baffert's horses. Now, Zoe, we get a situation where arguably the best three-year-old filly in the country will be absent from the Kentucky Oaks because of the Baffert ban. Yeah, speaking to Michael Lund Peterson after the race, he doesn't care. He does not care if he never goes back to Churchill Downs. Uh, he basically said it took the fun away from it. Bob Baffert is his trainer, and if Bob can't train his horses, then nobody's going to train his horses. He says he has fun with Bob. He was actually on hand at Santa Anita, first time seeing Faze run. He's from the Baltimore area. So the first time he actually saw her was at the two-year-old sale when they purchased her. He saw her run. He was very excited, flew in his plane from Montana, flew right back afterwards, back to Montana. And uh, I have no doubt that we'll likely see her in the Black-Eyed Susan because he lives in Baltimore. So, yeah, and he's just like, I don't care. He goes, Bob's my trainer. If he can't go, we're not going. This is my Kentucky Oaks right here. Not a bother on him. All right, back in New York, you know, we picked on the Poor Wood Memorial last week. And you know what? Uh, I'm not sure we were wrong. Uh, you know, this is the race of all the Kentucky Derby preps that has really fallen the most over the last few years. You know, the numbers, as we talked about last uh, week, no no horse uh, that ran in the woods since uh, uh, Funnyside in 2003 won the Kentucky Derby. The last wood winner to uh, win the Kentucky Derby was 2000 Fusachi Pegasus. Uh, ran, the Stat Randy came up, up with the last 40 horses to come out of the Wood Memorial since 2003. Not a single one across the wire, one, two, three. I don't think that's going to change. Uh, you got a, a head scratcher, Lord Miles. Guess it makes Tampa Trice look good. He was fifth beaten five and three quarter lengths behind him in the Tampa Bay Derby, sixth in the Holy Bolt. It was an exciting race. I'll say that much for it. But Lord Miles by a nose over hit show. Uh, the Brad Cox horse, another uh, head back to dreamlike, the maiden for Rapoli and Todd Pletcher. Um, you know, Lord Miles has earned his way into the Kentucky Derby, but uh, it's going to be 30, 40 to one. And I wouldn't bet him at twice those odds, Randy. Yeah, I mean, I agreed with the no call of the objection through the stretch. It was, you could, you know, there was so much bumping and grinding going on. It, it was hard to pin the fault on any one horse or rider. Kind of the same thing I thought with verifying and tap at uh, Trice in the bluegrass. I thought that objection, uh, you know, I thought Florent Giroux took a shot, but I thought it was more verifying coming out into tap at Trice at the end and vice versa. But this race was a complete mess from start to finish. I mean, the first turn was a complete disaster. 
uh, Slip Mahoney, General Banker, Mr. Swagger, Uncle Jake, all were severely compromised, especially Slip Mahoney. And then you had the bumping and grinding of the three horses coming down the stretch. And then you had the slow time on top of it all. Uh, I'll be shocked if this race has any impact at all on the uh, on the Kentucky Derby scene. You know, if you had to pick a horse, it would be Hit Show. I thought he was the best horse in the race, given that he had to go really wide around the first turn, couldn't really drop in, lost ground, probably was the best horse. So you can bump up his, you know, 93 buyer speed figure a few points, but yeah, bad race. I concur. Basically, I concur. Hit, hit show for me was the best horse going in. We know that Arctic Arrogance is li liable to run in the withers. I mean, in the Pat Day Mile on Derby Day, he was fourth. Um, yeah, uh, everything Randy said and more. All right. What's going on out in Santa Anita? Well, here comes our weekly segment, First Things First, with Zoe Catman. Cheers to a great, run-happy Santa Anita Derby Day. I've got my beer, I'm about to go and see the Compton Cowboys, but let's take a look back and see who I've been stalking today. His name starts with P. It's Practical Move! Good luck, Tim. Thank you. Good room for you. I'm sorry? We're rooting for you. And they're off in the run-happy Santa Anita Derby. Practical move, Mandarin hero. Practical move has won the run-happy Santa Anita Derby. How does it feel to win oh. the Santa Anita Derby, guys? It's a, it was just, it's a dream for us. We're, just, we're, we're just so excited. We're just, yeah, it's been a ride and a half. Any anxious moments? Yeah, yeah. The last 50 yards, I was getting worried. That horse was inching inch and nip on us, just getting there, you know, close. But watch but him gallop out. He don't. He gallops they never, out. They never pass him though. Yeah. Looks like you're going back to Kentucky, boys. Yes, yes, ma'am. You, you had fun last year, didn't you? Yeah. Sunday marked the end of the winter-spring meet here at Santa Anita. J.J. Hernandez took down the riding honors, Phil D'Amato took down leading trainer, and Tim Cohen's Rancho Temescal took down a leading owner. We will be back on Friday, April 21st, for the start of the Hollywood Meet. Join us then. The Lanes Inn Stallion of the Week is City of Light, whose first runners are three-year-olds this year, highlighted by the UAE Oaks winner, Mimi Kakushi. She will be flown into Churchill Downs on April the 19th to make her next scheduled start in the Kentucky Oaks. City of Light is a leading second crop sire as a racehorse. He had four grade one wins to his credit on the track, which makes him the best son to date on the track by his own leading sire, Quality Road. City of Light. A multiple grade one winner with 5.6 million in earnings. Winner of the grade one Malibu, the grade one triple bend, the grade one Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile, posting a 110 buyer, and the grade one Pegasus World Cup, posting a 112 buyer.
the best sun to date of leading stallion quality road, City of Light stands to continue his sire's legacy at Lane's End. What makes Woodford special is the attention to detail. Everyone on the team is doing their job. They're well qualified. They show up to work and they work hard and they care about the horse. And I think that's a reflection on uh, John Gleason's program. He gives me good information. He always uh, he has a very good understanding of the horse's well-being, where they're at physically and mentally. In equine nutrition, there's a triangle management, genetics, and nutrition. And John's criteria to accomplish that is at the highest pinnacle. I started breaking quarter horses for people when I was 15. You know, people send me quarter horses to break. And that's all I've done. You know, I don't hunt, I don't fish. I focus on training horses. I think about training horses on eating dinner, laying in bed before you go to sleep. And if you roll over in the middle of the night, I think about a horse and it's, you know, it's all consuming. And I think to be successful, it has to be. The TDN Writers' Room is brought to you by Woodford Thoroughbreds, a thousand-acre world-class facility in Reddick, Florida, breeding and selling their own stock, as well as offering breaking and training services to outside clients. Discover the Woodford Edge. Connections have confirmed that the Woodford-bred Mimi Kakushi is on her way to the Grade 1 Kentucky Oaks. Mimi Kakushi won the Grade 3 UAE Oaks and the listed UAE Thousand Guineas in her last two starts. She's due to fly to Kentucky on April the 19th and will be trainer Salim Bin Gadir's first runner in the U.S. The Fastest Horse of the Week is presented by the Fast Stallions at One Star Farm, including the Eclipse Award-winning stallion, whose promising first crop are 2023 yearlings. This time we have the fastest horses of the week, plural. We've got Practical Move. Of course, we've already covered his win in the Santa Anita Derby. But also earning a 100 buyer speed figure on Saturday was turf sprinter extraordinaire Caravel, who won the Shakertown Stakes at Keeneland. She did it in much the same way that she had won the Breeders' Cup turf sprint also at Keeneland last fall, going straight to the lead and then showing determination to hold off long shot Bad Beat Brian and win it by a head. It was the first start of 2023 for Caravelle, who is owned by the partnership of Cutter Racing, Chicago businessman Mark DeTample, and the ever-present Saul Cuman of Mattaquette Stable. The six-year-old daughter of Miz and Mast is trained by Brad Cox and was ridden in the Shakertown by Tyler Gaffrion. Caravelle's next planned start is as yet undetermined. That Windstar Stallion is improbable. Bob Afford once said that improbable got his name because he was placed in the same barn stalling at Santa Anita as Justify. And of course, it would be improbable for two Triple Crown winners to come out of that same stall. And no, improbable didn't win the Triple Crown, but he was an early winner at age two, winning a grade one with a buyer speed figure at 96. At age three, he was the favorite in both the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness. And at four, he was voted the country's champion older male with three grade one wins, finishing his career with buyers of 105, 106, 108, and then that 108 for finishing second in the Breeders' Cup Classic. With all that talent, plus soundness, and now a top-rated book of mares, it is highly probable that Improbable will now make a name for himself as a stallion at Windstar Farm. 
The Green Group specializes in the thoroughbred industry. In fact, they are the number one accounting and tax consulting advisory firm in the industry. And over the years, they've helped over 500 clients save money on taxes. Learn more about the Green Group at www.greenco.com. Welcome in now this week's Green Group Guest of the Week, Amy Moore. I'm having Amy Moore on because, A, she is the breeder of Forte, who is going to be, we think, the favorite in the Kentucky Derby, more so because she's got a great story to tell. Amy Moore was a lawyer for 30 years practicing in Washington, D.C., and one day she just said, the heck with this, I'm going to become a horse breeder. And lo and behold, here she is, having bred the likely favorite for the Kentucky Derby. Amy, tell us the story. Why, after all these years in the legal profession, did you decide to make a major career shift? Well, I had ridden as a child and as a teenager. I'd uh, had a little bit of exposure to racehorses. I galloped at Delaware Park for Del Carroll Sr. So when I was ready to retire, I wanted to live in the country. I thought I would buy a farm. And once you buy a farm, you can't mow the grass, you have to have animals to put on the farm. And since I knew a little bit about horses, I thought horses would be the right choice. And so you grew up riding horses. I mean, was this has this been a lifelong dream for you to quit the big job in the city and just say, I'm going to go buy a farm in Virginia and go and breed a Kentucky Derby horse? Has, has that <laughs> been the sure. one goal? Sure, that was my plan right from the start. No, I, <laughs> I did want to uh, eventually retire and and have a horse farm. That was that was the dream. But I didn't uh, dare dream that I would have a Kentucky Derby contender as my first foal. That that came as a surprise. <laughs> Now, Amy, you don't waste any time. Uh, The very first horse you ever bought that started this whole operation was Queen Caroline, who now is the dam of Forte. But she didn't start off all that well. In her first two starts, she was beaten a combined 42 and three-quarter lengths. At some point, you say, oh, my goodness, what am I doing here? (laughs) I certainly did. I thought I was going to have to go to the races with a paper bag over my head for shame. But uh, we switched her to turf, and that turned out to be what she wanted. Once, uh, once she was running on turf, she was very successful and was very good racehorse and was a great relief to me. I thought I had bombed out in my initial foray into the thoroughbred business. So you went to Keeneland on your own to buy your first horse, <laughs> spent 170000 of your own money, I mean, was that daunting? Did you have some help? Did you go in or just be like, oh, yes, I love that one? <laughs> like, how, how did the process start? Well, I had um, helped my uh, friends, the Littles, Faye and Jim Little, at yearling sales. So the yearling sale process was not entirely foreign to me. And I had learned a lot about confirmation from Jim Little who was a pinhooker, but before that, he was a human track coach. So he understood athletics as they relate both to horses and to humans. And he had taught me about confirmation. 
And so I felt that I could do as well as anybody else uh, picking out an athletic uh, filly for my racing operation. Of course, the, there were details that I didn't, uh, didn't know. I didn't know you had to fill out a card in order to see. <laughs> see <laughs> so I went to the first consignment and said, I'd like to see so-and-so. And they said, well, fill out a card and we'll bring the filly out. But uh, I got over those initial hiccups and um, thought I could do all right picking horses. And it, it's quite a process for sure. Yeah, it is. It's a much more elaborate process now than it was when I was leading out yearlings uh, for the yearling uh, for the littles and uh, showing them to prospective buyers. It's gotten a lot more uh, efficient, I guess. Oh, Amy, the very first horse you race turns out to be a stakes winner, Queen Caroline. The very first horse that you get as a breeder is her son, Forte now a grade one winner, the Florida Derby, et cetera. And as we mentioned, obviously going on to the Kentucky Derby from here. But, you know, you had to make these decisions along the way, and you obviously have made a lot of smart decisions. Why did you bring Queen Caroline to violence? Well, first of all, they were a very good physical match. I was looking for a stallion for her, her first mate that was affordable. And uh, Queen Caroline was, as you've already mentioned, not a good runner on dirt, but a very successful runner on turf. And yet I was trying to breed for the commercial market, which wants dirt runners and wants horses that are precocious. Whereas Queen Caroline, as you said, was beaten 42 lengths and her two starts as a two-year-old. So I thought I needed a stallion that had uh, was, was a dirt stallion, a stallion who could produce runners on dirt, but also maybe had some turf credentials in his pedigree. And violence was by Medaglia de Oro, who can get good runners on either surface. Uh, he had won a grade one race on synthetic, which is reasonably close to turf. Uh, he was a precocious horse. And he was a very good match for the mayor physically. So that was how I chose him. Amy, anyone listening to this is going to think, wow, how easy is this? <laughs> you know, she just walks in here. She goes to the sale, doesn't know how to fill out a card. She picks the mayor. Her first one that she's ever bred is going to the Kentucky Derby. And they're listening and they're like, wow, this is, this is an easy game. But we all know, I mean, I've bred some useless horses myself, that it's not an easy game. And there are extreme highs and extreme lows. Tell us about uh, Queen Caroline and, and what's happened with her foals since. Well, she had a, she had Forte and that was a good start, I would say. Uh, she, her second foal was by Uncle Mo and was a very nice yearling colt, uh, sold last September at the Keeneland sale. He was beautiful, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yes. He, he was a very nice colt. I liked him a lot. And then her third foal was born dead for reasons nobody knows. Uh, certainly I don't. And uh, so it took a long time for her to get over that. He was a... Uh, difficult birth for her and 
she had an infection, which we took a while to clean up. And her fourth bowl would have been by not this time, but she lost that bowl, I think, as as a result of not being completely over the, the uh, dead bowl. So, you know, as you say, it's highs and lows. You get bowls that you really like, and then you have problems and don't get a bowl and and have to go back to the drawing board and start over. Who did you breed back to? Who's she in to? She is in foal to flight line, and she's checked in foal at 42 days. So uh, she seems to be doing fine, and I'm very excited about uh, what that foal will turn out to be. So, Amy, your farm is in Virginia. That's where we're talking to you today. Um, Forte, though, born in Kentucky, you soon brought him back to Virginia, and that's where he was raised on your farm. I read that in the future, you're going to have your foals born in on your farm as well. So there'll be Virginia breads, not Kentucky breads. Uh, take us through that. I mean, it, you know, Kentucky, there's so many um, advantages to breeding in Kentucky, but that's not to say that Virginia is a bad place to breed. But, but why, why are you choosing Virginia sort of over Kentucky now? Well, I'm Virginia farmer, and uh, Virginia has a great breeding program. If you have a Virginia bred foal, uh, you're eligible for awards, breeders' awards, if the foal wins anywhere in the United States. It's one of the best uh, breeding programs in the country. So uh, for me, as a commercial breeder, it makes a lot of sense to be breeding in Virginia. The problem was that when Virginia did not have racing uh, for several years, we lost a lot of infrastructure. So it was hard to find a place that could do a good job of uh, foaling outside mares. I don't want to fold my own mares, so I send them uh, to another place to be foaled. But I was fortunate to find Patricia Ramey at uh, Huntridge Stables, who's been very good and has foaled my last two years' worth of uh, foals and done a terrific job. And the Virginia program is just so important, basically all across the country. You're actually, are you president of the Virginia Thoroughbred Association? You are immersed. <laughs> I am at the moment. <laughs> yes, I graduated from being treasurer and signing all those checks that people are getting. Uh, but yes, it's, it's a great program in Virginia. Uh, the Virginia uh Equine Alliance and Virginia Thoroughbred Association uh, developed the Virginia Certified Program, which brings a lot of outside horses to Virginia. Uh, and that has been a lifesaver for farms like mine. I have a bunch of yearlings who are here now as boarders to be Virginia Certified. So it's a, it's a state that really supports the program. The legislature is behind us and is running again, and we see a bright future ahead. Amy, what did you think of uh, Forte's Florida Derby? I don't believe you were there in person, but I'm sure you're watching his every move. And, uh, you know, he wins again. Maybe I, some of our, us on the podcast thought he's maybe a little bit more impressive in the Fountain of Youth than he was in the Florida Derby, but certainly it's another step in the right direction. What did you think? Well, I thought the Florida Derby was a heart stopper. <laughs> I didn't think he was going to get the job done. 
at the eighth pole, I thought he might be third. At the 16th pole, I thought he might possibly be second, but I never dreamed he was going to get up and win. Uh, he had a he had a really tough post position, uh, and uh, he got farther back, I think, than he's accustomed to be, but he finds a way to win, and that's what good horses do. Have you imagined in your mind, I can't even imagine breeding a winner, let alone a two-year-old champion. Have you thought in your mind what it's going to feel like if he wins the Derby? I mean, how did it feel to win the Florida Derby? I mean, it's got to be like a child winning for you, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's terrific. Yeah. One of the nicest things about it, though, is that now everyone in Clark County, Virginia, which is the smallest county in Virginia, knows Forte. He's a local hero. So if I go to the post office or the grocery mm -hmm. store or wherever, people are rooting for Forte and want to know how he's doing and, and are very interested in him. And that's a nice thing to have the community, a lot of people that know nothing about horse racing uh, behind the horse. That's very cool. Going back to the law, I, I don't, um, I, well, first of all, what kind of lawyer were you? What was your, your specialty? My specialty was employee benefits. I advised uh, large companies on their retirement and health plans, basically. It's mm -hmm. mostly a tax practice, but there's a little bit of labor law and other things mixed in. Okay. I imagine that uh, meant a lot of stress, maybe some 60, 70 hour weeks. Do you miss it at all? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> a 70-hour week would have been a, a light week, frankly. Yeah, it was, it was very intense, a lot of hard work. It was fun because you're working with extremely bright people, and, and that's always challenging and fun. But, uh, no, I have never looked back. I like being a farmer a lot better than I like being a lawyer. And you still need a job. I mean, your farm is pretty active. Do you have borders? Because you seem like you still want to make money. It's not like you just retired and moved to the farm and you're independently wealthy. Do you have a lot of income and a lot of horses on your farm right now other than yours? I have a lot of horses, a lot of income I would like to have. <laughs> but I have a lot of expenses. But no, the, I'm operating uh, as a business business. Uh, it's really two businesses. One is breeding and selling what I breed. And the other business is boarding other people's horses. And I have a lot of uh, yearlings here. Uh, right now, I have 17 that belong to other people and two that belong to me and, and some retired horses and some brood mares and some miscellaneous fox hunters and things. But uh, but yeah, it's a lot of work. I'm the bookkeeper for the farm. I have two very good farm workers. Uh, so among the three of us, we keep the operation going. Amy, um, I got one more question. You mentioned flight line and the breeding to flight line. How much are you hoping and praying for a filly? Because I think I read that you are 0 for 7. You just oh, keep getting oh, braids. <laughs> I'm now oh. for 8. <laughs> Oh, for eight. Yeah, I had a foal by not this time, born January 31st. He's a beautiful colt, but he's a colt. So I'm, I'm still looking for my first filly. 
I would love to have a Philly bike light line out of Queen Caroline. That would be a dream come true. Well, Amy, we know it's not this easy, but somehow you are making it look easy. Congratulations on all your success. Imagine the first horse you ever breed might win the Kentucky Derby. What an incredible story. Thanks so much for joining us this week on the TDN Riders Room Podcast. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Amy. This week's guest of the week, Amy Moore, will receive a free one-hour tax consultation from The Green Group. You can learn more about how The Green Group can save you on taxes at www.greenco.com. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select The Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport, like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonder Wheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. Here in Pennsylvania, we're proud of our breeding program, the best in North America, but we're also proud to be leaders in this industry. The PA Horse Breeders Association is funding cutting-edge research at PennVet to detect gene doping in thoroughbreds, and we endorsed the SAFE Act to help protect the most vulnerable horses. Plus, we're pleased to support the aftercare programs set up by our horsemen's groups. Just a few of the reasons why you should join us in Pennsylvania, the premier place to breed and race. The TD and Riders Room is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association, the PHBA. We told you last week about how Pennsylvania-bred Angel of Empire rolled home in the Arkansas Derby. Well, the hits just keep on coming for Pennsylvania-breds because Caravelle last Saturday was the winner of the Shaker Town at Keeneland, coming off, of course, that big win in the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint. Caravelle was bred in Pennsylvania by Elizabeth Merriman, and now Caravelle has won five graded stakes. Don't know yet about the next start for Caravelle, but her wins just keep on coming. For more about breeding in Pennsylvania, visit www.pabred.com. Well, some big races this weekend coming up, including the Apple Blossom. We'll get to that first. But guys, I want to talk about a story that I had in the Thoroughbred Daily News this week. Um, trader Ron Fauché. Uh, he had won the tra- training title at the fairgrounds three straight years, uh, is a very good trainer, very successful. Uh, he, uh, his earnings last year for his stable were $2 million. He had 81 winners, and he has left training to become a jockey agent. Now, we've seen this story uh, before a couple other people, Kieran McLaughlin, et cetera. And the reason was, he says, he can't make a good living being a trainer. He says, this was a lot of work, and in all honesty, over the last several years, I wasn't make any money doing it. And this is a story that is is uh, becoming a bigger story uh, seemingly uh, all the time with, you know, if you see a trainer that wins five races a year, well, OK, I get it. You can't make a good living. You're going to go off and, and do something else. This guy's a leading trainer at the fairgrounds. And he says he can't make a decent living 
and would rather be a jockey agent. Um, and he didn't, you know, necessarily like at least Karen McLaughlin got Luis Saez. He got a, a, a mid-level jockey named Jose Luis Rodriguez on the uh, Louisiana circuit. It's a scary situation when a guy doing this good says, I can't make a living. And, you know, I don't know what the answers are. He said he, his day rate was uh, not really enough to cover all his expenses. But and that's what the day rate is for uh, uh, $75 a day. Says that's that's pretty standard for trainers that are year-round on the Louisiana circuit. Randy, what does this say about the difficulties oh. trainers have? Look, the three of us have spent a lot of time in this business, and we've spent a lot of time around trainers of all different success levels, from the top of the top down to the guys that uh, you know that we see all the time around the track, the good guys that we know struggle to make ends meet. And you know, there's one thing all three of us have, have really learned. It's that it's being a horse trainer. You have to really love what you do because there are so many inherent difficulties built in to that profession that it is just extremely challenging. And from a financial aspect, I mean, you've got the workers' compensation stuff that eventually I think is what drove Kieran McLaughlin out of the sport up in New York. You've got the challenge you know, and finding help and, and you live in constant fear of a medication overage that could completely, completely wreck your business. I mean, there's so many pitfalls, the hours involved. It's tough to take vacation time. Uh, there's a lot of travel involved if you're not on a circuit where there's year round racing. So you're, you, you know, you're forced to spend a lot of time away from your family. I can see why some of these guys like Ron uh, get frustrated, especially if they're having trouble paying their bills, despite the fact that they're a leading trainer at a major circuit. I mean, look at Kieran. Kieran was near the top of his profession and decided to get out. And it just kind of drives home the point that if it's this tough on guys that are really successful, just think about how difficult it is on the little guys. Yeah, it's a tough game. It's a really, really tough game. Now, he, he hasn't ruled out coming back to training. That's one thing he has not ruled out. And we do know that he was one of the trainers down in New Orleans that had a big beef with Hissa. So that that was, I think, one of the reasons moving forward as well, that he didn't want to deal with any of the regulations as far as Hissa is concerned. And this kid was writing for him. So he's going to take the kid's book, has not ruled out coming back to training. I, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if we saw him come back for the next New Orleans Fairgrounds meet. But for now, he wants to spend some time with his young family. And we all know that being a horse trainer is a 26-8 job. I mean, there are no days off. There's no time off. Every time you pick up the phone, something's happened. So uh, I think he's taking a little bit of a time out. And if uh, Rodriguez, you know, kicks off, then he'll be doing just fine. So, you know, Rodriguez had a decent enough meet at the fairgrounds. I think he was sixth. And uh, the bulk of his winners came for riding for Fauché. So he's going to just continue that on with him. I wish him the best of luck. I really do. He's a nice guy. Yeah, we'll uh, stay tuned to that story. And uh, we wish him luck as a jockey agent or if he does come back to training, which was, I would imagine he probably will. He's only 40 years old, and uh, maybe he can figure out a way to uh, you know make ends uh, meet a little bit better, maybe raise his day rate or something like that. All right, this weekend's racing, obviously, Keeneland. Again, we're right in the middle of this terrific meet. Uh, three stakes on Saturday, including the Jenny Wiley and the Lexington stakes, which a uh, handful of derby points are available in, in, in that. 
But the, to me, the biggest race of the week at Keeneland will be on Friday, the Maker's Mark Mile. Boy, because uh, how do you not love modern games? And it's so nice to see Charlie Appleby bring him back to the U.S. His first start this year after winning the Breeders' Cup Mile. He's raced three times in the U.S. And all he's done is win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf, even though uh, the betters didn't cash in that day. Uh, the Woodbine Mile and then the Breeders' Cup Mile uh, last uh, year as well. Um, he's, you know, and Charlie Appleby wins, what, about 87 percent? Uh, in the in the U.S. with his horses, so uh, right. Randy, I, I, from a betting standpoint, I'm not excited about betting on him at three to five in the morning line. But as a fan, I, I can't wait to see him back in on U.S. soil. Yeah, I mean, I, I would you know get a chance to look at the past performances to see if there's anything in there you can feel good about hooking him up at an exact and try to capitalize on. But yeah, it's just uh, this is going to be just a fun race to watch, maybe more so than bet, uh, and really appreciate exactly how good of a horse. Modern games is because he's really, really good, and I, and it's it's really great for the sport, uh, sport in the United States specifically, that a guy like Charlie Appleby is willing to bring modern games over to run here since he's proven in this country so often, not just in the fall leading up to the Breeders' Cup, but now even in the spring at Keeneland. I think that's a, that's a big step. It's nice. Yeah, I can't wait to see him. I will be watching. Um... I could give some credence to Emmanuel in there for trainer Todd Pletcher because all of a sudden he's got good. Yes, that's been coming in grade threes at Tampa and Gulfstream Park. And then there's a newcomer for none other than Chad Brown in there, Dr. Zempf, who's six to one on the morning line. If you look back through his past performances over there in Europe, he's run against the likes of Kinross. He got beaten two and a half lengths to Go Bears Go, who was a really, really stellar two-year-old. That was in the railway stake. So I think that Dr. Zemp will likely be bet down from that six to one morning line for Chad Brown and Peter Brandt, and he'll get the services of Gaffione, who won into one on him and in the easy victory at Gulfstream Park last time out. Just his second U.S. start, but really looking forward to seeing modern games. Bill, as far as the Lexington goes, I mean, we're taping this obviously on Wednesday morning. Before, uh, we don't know the entries yet for the Lexington. It could be potentially significant for the Derby because uh, right now a, a probable starter, I think, is Disarm from the Winchell Stable trained by Steve Asmussen, who was a good second, pace compromise second uh, to Kings Barnes in the Louisiana Derby. Right now, Disarm has 40 points. And he's on the outside looking in. The Lexington offers 20 for first, eight for second, six for third, and four for fourth. So if Disarm can run one, two, three, he can pretty much be, be uh, uh, guaranteed a spot in the Derby field. And maybe even with a couple of dropouts, a fourth place finish could be enough for Disarm to get into the field and potentially uh, knock out a horse like Jace's rope. Yeah, he's definitely going to be one to bet in there because confidence game is not going for trainer uh, Kent Solman. He said he's going straight to the Derby. All right, so that's the story in the Lexington Saturday. Uh, from a purse standpoint, grade one standpoint, the Apple Blossom at Oakland uh, with $1 million purse headlines the action there. Um, you know, two ways to look at it. Uh, you got two terrific horses in there in Secret Oak and Clarier. Jelly have a four-horse field. Uh, and one of the horses I feel the need is coming out of starter allowance races and, and you know, is, is one to a thousand to finish last in there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, Randy, you're, you're, um, I think it's disappointing. Well, it is. I don't think it is disappointing. There's only four horses in, in such a prestigious race. But you have two very good horses, Secret Oath, uh, 
was was a dominant winner over Claire Air last time out in the Azari, uh beat her by two lengths and change. Um, can she turn the tables on her in the, in the Apple Blossom? We'll find out. And can Wayne Lucas win still another huge race on his uh, 87-year-old season where he is uh, training like he's 35 right now and his horses are running their eyeballs out? So uh, that's the story at Oakland Saturday. Yeah, it's you can make the case pretty easily that the Apple Blossom is the number one non-Breeders' Cup race in America for older fillies and mares. If you look historically at the race, it's just sensational. And I don't, on paper, visually as well, it, it, it there's really nothing you can find that would lead you to believe that Clarier can turn the tables on Secret Oath at Oaklawn Park. Secret Oath seems to be at her very best at Oaklawn Park. She was a dominant winner of the Azari. They were both uh, making their first start since the Breeders' Cup, so there was no recency issues there. Uh, you could logically assume that Steve Asmussen had Clarier ready to go for a race like the Azari, uh, just like Wayne had Secret Oath ready to go. So uh, I would expect to see Secret Oath win again, although I also suspect a little bit later on in the year that uh, that Clarier will prove uh, probably to be the better of the two when we get closer to the Breeders' Cup. And by the way, really nice to see Stone Street bring Clarier back for her five-year-old season. It would have been really easy to retire a mare of her stature by Curlin out of cavorting to the broodmare band. And Barbara Banke instead decided to bring her back to run. Uh, it's good for the sport and, uh, and three cheers for her in making that decision. Yeah, I'm right with you there, Randy. I think it's it's going to be a fun race to watch. It's going to be a jockey's race. Uh, obviously, Hot and Sultry will likely be the pace setter and Seeker Oath and Clarier can play cat and mouse behind her. Uh, I'll be watching it for sure. Um, Seeker Oath, much the best in her last over Clarier. And uh, we'll see who comes out on top this time. The TDM Writers' Room is brought to you by XBTV. The XBTV workout of the week is two for the price of one as we take a look at English B. She is on the outside of Sparkle Blue here for Grand Motion at Palm Meadows. See, we're not just out here in Southern California. We have people on the ground down there at Palm Meadows as well. It looks like English B actually will be headed to run in the Modesty at Churchill Downs and uh, Sparkle Blue will run in the Henry Clark at Laurel. Those two seen working there for trainer Graham Motion. All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life. Make new friends and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point Thoroughbred partnership can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie among people surrounding high-class horses and stakes action for a fraction of the cost of doing it on your own. Would you like to become a West Point partner and do some good at the same time? West Point has generally donated a 2% partnership in the unraced two-year-old Lady Bonher to help raise money for Habitat for Humanities Veterans Build program. The program helps injured veterans stay in their own homes by making critical home repairs 
adapting the homes to vets' needs and maintaining them so they can live with dignity. Lady Bonher is the daughter of Munnings and will race on the New York and Florida circuit for trainer Christophe Clement. As a 2% partner, you will receive no future bills and will be a partner for the entirety of her racing career. The package is worth just under 4,000 and a silent auction will take place on April the 29th. To register a bid, contact Sue Finley at the TDN.com. And this week's Remy cartoon, which runs every Friday in the TDN is in. And um, imagine if when horses uh, breed to one another, actually had to have a wedding ceremony before they were allowed to do it. Well, uh, in Tappet Wedding, which is the title of Remy's cartoon this week, uh, he tackles that very subject. So that's a wrap for this week's Thoroughbred Daily News Writers Room podcast. I want to thank our Green Group guest of the week, Amy Moore. I want to thank my partners, Zoe Cadman and Randy Moss, along with our producer, Patty Wolf, our associate producer, Katie Petruniak, and our editors, Anthony LaRocca, Leo LaRocca, and Nathan Wilkinson. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning us in.